Welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Kevin Hill. And I'm Beth Stefel. We're members of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with doctors Candace Smith, Claudia Herrera Montero, uh, John Stefel, and Brian Reed. Today, we are very pleased. You might even say we're very keen to have with us Karen Keen. <laughs> um, Karen is a biblical scholar, author, and spiritual care provider. Uh, through the Redwood Center for Spiritual Care and Education, she teaches classes on scripture and facilitate groups on spiritual practices for people from all walks of life. She holds a THM in Biblical Studies from Duke Divinity School, along with an MA in Exegetical Theology and an MS in Education. And she's also the author of multiple books, including her most recent book, which we'll be chatting about quite a bit, uh, The Word of a Humble God, The Origins, Inspiration, and Interpretation of Scripture, which was published by Erdman's in 2022. And um, I have the honor of having known Karen for a while, and we've gotten to work together on the Institute for Biblical Research, um, some of the work there. And something I love about Karen, she's very supportive of other scholars and really cares about um, not just doing things for herself, but really honestly honoring others and lifting them up, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful gift. And so I'm thankful to say she's my friend as well as my colleague, um, and I'm looking forward to our, our interview questions with her today. And this conversation is going to have three sections or movements. We'll begin by discussing Karen's scholarship. Then we'll explore how this connects to Christian life and the life of the church. And lastly, we'll talk about what we call the marginalia. These are the fun questions that help us get to know Karen a bit as a whole person. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to subscribe in your podcast player and share it with others. Karen, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And um, Beth, it's great to see you. And, and I, I just want to affirm I have, it's been a joy to work with you as well. And I'm um, excited to get to know Kevin a bit and our mm-hmm. talk today. So thank you for having me. Well, we'll start by asking you a general question. Why don't you tell us something about yourself that most people don't know? So... Um, I would say one thing that most people don't know is that I spent my junior year of college living on a kibbutz in Israel. Kibbutz wow. Shema. Yeah. So Kibbutz Shema Agan, it's right on the Canaret. That is the, the Sea of Galilee. And it was part of a study abroad program where we traveled to archaeological sites to study on location uh, the Bible. And in addition to studying, of course, I had to work on the kibbutz. And my primary job was picking avocados. But occasionally, I did end up working in the laundry room and uh, had the privilege of working with uh, the elderly women who had um, survived the Nazi Holocaust. Mm. They would have been in concentration camps. It was very sobering to, to see the numbers on their forearms. Um, and it was an honor to work with them. And I have to say, they were very, very gracious when I accidentally scorched off the collar of a shirt that I was trying to make. Um, I guess I am better suited for the fields than, than the laundry room. <laughs> well, I am also better suited for fields than laundry rooms, so I, I relate. <laughs> I've had the joy of knowing you for a while, but um, I'd love that our listeners would love to hear a little more of your story of um, you know, what brought you to this kind of writing and research and, and also the spiritual direction work that you do. Um, I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, my primary research interest, I would say, are the formation of the Bible, 
hermeneutics, the history of interpretation, the the intersection of, of scripture and culture, ethics, as well as spiritual formation. And I would say that what, what brought me to uh, those interests is a deep love of scripture. I mm. was I was raised in the Baptist tradition, and if there's one thing that Baptists can do well, it's to and instill a deep appreciation of mm. the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I grew up reading, memorizing, and studying Scripture, and I have never lost that truly all-consuming love of of the Bible. So that naturally led to me wanting to know how do we best interpret Scripture. What can we learn about, uh, you know, how Jews and Christians have interpreted the Bible across history? Uh, learning about the impact and use of the Bible culturally and in the public sphere, as well as ethics, because ethics has to do mm-hmm. with how we live our lives. And I see the Bible as a guide mm-hmm. for Christian life and practice, helping us to discern how to live in a Christ-like way. In addition to academic work, I've also been trained as a spiritual director by the Faithful Companions of Jesus to their uh, community of Catholic sisters in the Ignatian tradition, uh, the tradition of Ignatius of Loyola. And so my written work, my book, tends to dovetail with uh, these particular interests. So my first book was on scripture, ethics, and same-sex relationships and how the church might think about how do we respond to this ethical question of, of sexuality? My second book was on the Ignatian spiritual exercises. So it's actually a nine-month uh, daily guide to prayer, scripture reading, and discernment. Mm-hmm. And of course, my most recent book is on the origins and interpretation of the Bible. And, uh, you know, this brings together my my love for both the intellectual life and the, and the spiritual life. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, I've actually started spiritual direction just about the, a year, a year and a half ago. Um, and it's been so important and transformational to me. And what I've learned from it as I've been talking to other scholars is how many other biblical scholars are actually have been doing spiritual direction or have learned from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, a, it's such a powerful thing that I think I think people sometimes separate our intellectual life from our spiritual life. And it's so important to have an integration of those pieces. And I think it's affected how I see scripture and how um, how I live scripture. Um, and so I love the way you bring those things together, Karen, in your work and life and practice. Mm, mm, yes, thank you. I just wanted to say that I recently finished reading your book, The Word of a Humble God. And you've done an amazing job with this book. You've summarized uh, so much literature and often this is the type of thing that students and, and interested pastors and teachers would have to read five or six books in order to capture all the ideas. You've captured all in a single volume that's accessible to not only academics, but also interested laypersons in the church and if you'd stopped there, I would have recommended your book. But you've also woven throughout the whole book a central thesis or proposal that the origins of Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture reveal something about who God is. 
Namely, it reveals a humble God who invites us to imitate God's humility. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by humility? Because I must admit, like when I was raised and, and even as an adult, I still often think about humility as sort of self-deprecation mm-hmm. and beating oneself up. Mm-hmm. So is that what you have in mind? No, I've, no, <laughs> absolutely not. But I think that's true, that it's a, a conception that most of us, or, or I would say a lot of us have. Um, uh, I, I grew up with that mentality as well, sort of being a, a doormat. Um, I, I draw my definition of humility from Matthew Wilcoxon's book, Divine Humility, God's Morally Perfect Being. And he defines humility as an orientation toward a community of self-giving love. So humility is not self-depreciation or subordination. It's not flogging oneself. It's using one's power for the benefit of the community. And Will Coxton points out that uh, early church fathers like Basil and Augustine paradoxically understood humility as a form of greatness, because there really is something grand and noble about using one's power to lift up others. Uh, And um, so as I point out in my book, we see this humility with God, who creates human beings to share power with them. God created us in the divine image and gives us responsibility to rule over the earth. And by ruling over the earth, I don't mean exploiting the earth, but we are to care for and um, look after all of creation. Uh, We see this theme of God sharing power, not only in creation itself in Genesis, but all the way through through the gospel. So we see, for example, in Ephesians, um, Ephesians 2, we are seated with Christ in the spiritual realm. And that word seated is, 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 a, is a word that the connotation is enthroned. We are enthroned with Christ, Christ in the spiritual realm. And um, in, in, in Revelation 22, we hear Jesus say uh, to those who are faithful, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And I think we just have to pause a moment. Sometimes we just brush right through that. And and uh, I think we need to pause and say, oh, my goodness. What kind of God shares a throne with mm. anybody, mm. let alone yeah. human beings? And it, it is truly <laughs> mind boggling. Yeah. And, and, and here we are in the church quibbling and fighting about who gets to do what role and, and all of that. And meanwhile, God is saying, come up and sit with me here and reign mm. with me. And, and, yeah. and that, that is humility. Uh, there was no one and nothing greater than God. And yet God wants mm. to elevate us and share power with us. And we see this, this humility at work in the origins of the Bible itself. God did not just drop a golden book from heaven, but rather Mm -hmm. chose to collaborate with human beings in the production of scripture. So God's humility has implications, not only for the origins of the Bible, but also for how we interpret the Bible and, Mm -hmm. and live out our lives. 
So um, in, in chapter nine of your book, you discussed this idea of chronological snobbery and how historical critical interpretation of the Bible is sometimes given a certain kind of prevalence, um, while there are other ways that we can think about interpretation. And you you couch this in this bigger conversation about um, humility. Um, and I'd love for you to chat just a little bit more about that. Uh, so chronological snobbery is a phrase that was um, coined by C.S. Lewis. And he uh, came up with this term when he realized that he was having a judgmental attitude toward people who lived in the past. So when he wanted to insult something that was backward or primitive from history, he would say, oh, that's so medieval. And so he, <laughs> he, defi- yeah, uh, he, he defined chronological snobbery as viewing our current intellectual climate as superior to anything mm-hmm. that has come before us. So it's so basically a, a dismissal of tradition as they weren't as smart as us or, or that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. that we don't really, there's nothing for us to really learn from people who have come before us. Uh, in my book, I point out that when it comes to biblical interpretation, every generation tends to have a, a kind of a myopic view, believing that its own methods or approaches to, to, to interpretation are superior. So when it comes to mm-hmm. exegetical methods, we tend to be chronological snobs. And my argument is that because God is at work across history, that every generation has something to offer in its Mm -hmm. its biblical interpretation. The church has been sustained across time by a variety of different interpretive approaches. And so one of those approaches is uh, historical criticism, which looks at the world behind the text. And the value of historical criticism is its appreciation that the Bible has a socio-historical context. We, we can't just superimpose onto the Bible our modern assumptions that would be anachronistic. So mm-hmm. we want to discern what the biblical authors are saying. Uh, and that means a- attending to and understanding the cultural context in which they wrote. Uh, but historical critics can also uh, fall into chronological snobbery when they say that this particular method of interpretation is superior to, for example, uh, methods of the early church or uh, Christians from the medieval period who tended to focus on the world in the text and not the world behind it. Uh, that includes mm. interpretive approaches like the fourfold sense of scripture uh, in the early church and throughout the medieval period. There was a belief in not just looking for the literal sense of scripture, but also the allegorical and topological and anagogical senses of scripture. And so historical critics can make the mistake of dismissing for example, the theological meaning of the Bible. But as theologian Mm -hmm. Ray says, history is theological because God is active Mm -hmm. across history. Mm -hmm. That's really, really helpful. Thank you. 
One of the topics that I was so pleased to see you discuss in your book is the diversity of the biblical canon within the global church. Whether someone is a Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant Christian, I think it's easy for them to assume that their Bible or canon is correct and everyone else has it wrong. I noticed instead of taking sides, though, you suggested that this diversity reveals more about God and about Scripture. Could you speak to this a little bit? Well, there's never been complete agreement on one biblical canon in, in global Christianity. Now, there's near agreement. For example, all the major branches of Christianity accept as canonical the same 27 books of the New Testament. But even there, the ordering of the books and the importance given to them varies. So, for example, in Russian Bible, the general epistle, that is James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and Jude, are placed after the book of Acts and before Romans. This is just, that's the same ordering that we find in the, the 4th century Bible, uh, Codex Vaticanus. Uh, in the Syriac tradition, the books 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation are not typically read in the church liturgy, and they're not given as much importance, which is wild to think about as someone who comes to a tradition, come from a tradition where Revelation was very prominent. Uh, we talked about the tribulation and the end time to realize that there are some Christian communities where uh, that was hardly uh, glanced at. It's really intriguing to think about. Uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, Catholic and Orthodox Christians accept uh, more books into the canon than, than Protestants. And when we look at Bible manuscripts from different time periods, we see that different regions had slightly different collections. And this has always been the case. So I think the demand for one single canon goes against how the Holy Spirit has moved across time. Uh, you know, within global Christianity, there has been some flexibility. And that does not mean that, that anything goes. Uh, the canon, despite their variations, became relatively fixed. But the reason that these variations in the canons is not a problem to solve has to do with the purpose of Scripture, which is mm -hmm. to, to point us to Christ. All the major branches of global Christianity hold to the Nicene Creed and look to Scripture uh, to learn about the salvation story, the story of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And this is why Augustine accepted more books into the Old Testament canon than his, his peer, Jerome. Jerome preferred the Hebrew Bible canon, which Protestants used. Uh, but Augustine believed that additional books in the Catholic Old Testament, the deuterocanonical books, are scripture because they also point us to Christ. Um, I would argue that the variation in canons shows us God's humility and caring about particular Christian communities. God works with us where we are in our particular context. Uh, and um, so followers of Jesus have lived in diverse circumstances and time periods. And so that created slight variations in, in canon use. Um, 
the different canons of, of global Christianity also teach us humility because it teaches us that the body of Christ has different parts and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need mm. of you. Yeah. You know, um, uh, one of my, my first uh, full-time professor position um, was actually at a Catholic institution, a uh, Catholic university. And uh, it was really interesting coming out of this um, very low church Protestant context uh, where I had never even looked at the deuterocanonicals. Like mm-hmm. I hadn't even, mm-hmm. didn't even know they really existed. Right, right. I did in a general sense, but didn't really know them like as books and to start to wonder, to start to experience like, what does it look like as, cause I'm teaching to Catholics in a Catholic institution. What does it mean to think of scripture broad, more broadly than the canon I was given? And, um, and that has been, it's really interesting how, that 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 does uh, cause us to like reach out in new ways to see things in new light, um, and uh, I really appreciate this notion of how that plays into humility. Um, you know, it's interesting. Another thing that you talk about in the book is this idea. In chapter seven, you talk about the idea of quote quote. I'm putting in parentheses literal or not in parentheses in quotation marks literal interpretations of scripture. Um, and uh, I really liked you to talk a little bit about. Um, what you would include in the idea of literal and, and maybe some of the complexities around the way that the word literal is sometimes used? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an absolutely great question. There's so much misunderstanding around the word literal. Sometimes when people encounter bad interpretation of scripture, they will say, well, we can't, we just can't take the Bible literally. And to be honest, I really cannot stand that use of the word literal. Um, Of course, we want to take the teachings of scripture literally. I want to take literally the instruction, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, So when it comes to poor interpretation of scripture, I would prefer that we use the word wooden. We don't want to engage in wooden interpretations of the Bible. And to avoid wooden interpretations is to, you know, avoid legalistic readings or readings that don't Mm -hmm. pay attention to literary genre. For example, Mm -hmm. interpreting the metaphor, God is my rock, as God is a hard object on a ground that I pick up and hold in my hand, it's obviously wrong. So we want to pay attention to literary genre to interpret correctly in order to get the actual meaning that is uh, being conveyed. I understand literal as what is the true message of the text. Mm -hmm. And the true message of scripture is Christ. So Mm -hmm. in this way, I agree with the definition of literal that has been held throughout Christian tradition. And that is the literal sense is the salvation story. The literal sense is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the implications Mm -hmm. of the gospel. That's why Augustine could say, whoever thinks that he understands the Bible, but puts on it such an interpretation that it does not build up love of God and neighbor has not correctly understood the text. And uh, this is why also it has been possible for the church to be uh, sustained by different uh, exegetical methods, whether allegory or historical criticism or canonical reading, 
a wide variety of interpretive methods can lead us and do and have led us to see Christ in scripture. At the Mm -hmm. same time, any interpretive method can be abused Mm -hmm. to cause great evil uh, when Christ is not the literal meaning. So, for example, Mm -hmm. American slaveholders defended slavery by saying, look, Leviticus 25.44 explicitly says your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you and from them you may buy slaves. Paul the Apostle told slaves to submit to their masters. That's the plain meaning of the text. And slaveholders said, if you if you don't accept that plain reading of scripture, you obviously don't believe in the authority of the Bible. Hmm. So uh, while slaveholders believed this plain sense of the text, uh, you know, Leviticus does in fact say you can own slaves from the nations. Uh, Paul did in fact say, submit to your masters. Um, uh, th- th- the fact that they believe that this plain se- uh, sense of the text was the literal sense that we should follow completely missed the point of the Bible's salvation story, which it involved Christ's liberation for all of mm-hmm. creation from its groaning. So I hold to Christ as the literal meaning of scripture. And more specifically in my book, I argue that that God's humility as demonstrated in Christ is the literal meaning. So any sound mm-hmm. interpretation of scripture will lead us to embody that same humility. And humility mm. is what is the foundation of love that enables us to love our neighbor as ourself. I love that because I think it also plays into, you know, one of the things in John's writings, for example, is the idea that they will, how will they know that we're Christians? It's not by, um, it's not by our uh, uh, our main and plain reading, but by our love that flows into these different fruits um, mm-hmm. that they see, the spiritual fruit of our lives, um, love that looks like Christ in in that self-giving way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I love the idea that how you have taken a wave interpretation and said, you know, this needs to look like the humble God we serve. Um, and I, I think that's just such a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're now going to move on to the second part of the show, which focuses on connecting scholarship to the church and Christian life. I'm going to start with a question to do with children and children's ministry. My wife is a children's pastor, and I often serve alongside her. And we also have three young children who've just started to discover scripture and open up the Bible and ask, what does it say and and what does it mean? And I can imagine several ways in which your work could help shape children's first introductions to scripture. Have you given thought to this? And do you have any advice for parents or children's pastors or teachers on how maybe we can help kids to develop a healthy approach to viewing the Bible? Uh, you know, it's interesting that you ask ask me that question because I actually have thought about the possibility of taking the key points of my book and and translating them into a children's book, perhaps fourth or fifth mm-hmm. grade, 
Um, so who knows? Maybe maybe that's something that I will do. I would love for kids to learn about the fascinating origins of the Bible early on. There are so many people who end up losing their faith or losing their trust in scripture when they have been taught faulty presuppositions mm-hmm. uh, about the nature of the Bible. And uh, particularly when they have been taught a, a very simplistic idea that essentially is the Bible fell from heaven. And so there's a sense of disturbance when they, as, as uh, kids grow up and they become adults and they start seeing that there are difficult passages in scripture that can mm. feel very alarming and disillusioning. But if they understood the complexity of scripture early on, then it would not feel uh, threatening at all. Um, so parents can teach their kid, wow, look at this amazing way that the Bible was made. Uh, God is humble and decided to work together with human beings to create it. Look how everyone pitched in to make it happen. The Holy Spirit, the prophet, the scribe, it was a group project. And look at how different generations contribute to it because God is at work in every generation. And we can also see look how the Bible was published in stages. And that's a little different than how publishing happens now, isn't it? Uh, You know, something along those lines that treats the origins as a fascinating process uh, Mm -hmm. rather than a threatening one. And Mm -hmm. so uh, early exposure to the reality of, of the Bible's origins can help strengthen faith and good interpretation for young people by giving them from the beginning uh, an an appreciation for the complexities of the Bible. And that can inculcate them against fear of those complexities. Yeah, you know, that really connects to to my next question, which is actually around the idea of the Bible as uh, dynamic rather than mm-hmm. static, mm-hmm. Um, and that our interpretations of Scripture are therefore dynamic in, 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 in relation to this triune God. I would love for you to talk just more generally about, like, how does this help us as Christians today when we read the Bible? Yeah, another great question. Um, what I love about the dynamism of the Bible is that it reminds us that God is is at work in every generation. So dynamism mm. refers to the reality that scripture was, was published in stages. Book publishing today is the result of the printing press. So a manuscript today is published in a, in a fixed form, usually as a one-time event, unless you write a second edition. But there were no printing presses or computers two and 3,000 years ago. Um, and that reality allowed scribes to shape the big biblical text over many years, sometimes adding to it or modifying what was passed down to them before the text eventually reached a final form. And I believe that teaches us a couple of things. First, it teaches us humility because we might wish we had a Bible that didn't involve the messiness of scribal culture. We might wish for one perfect computer spell check, pristine manuscript that showed no <laughs> changes in shape over time. Uh, you know, in, the, in, in reality, we, we kind of want that Bible that is dropped straight out of heaven, that is just perfectly safe and containable and controllable. Mm. So it takes humility to accept 
the way that it that it came together. Um, we cannot subjugate the Bible to our wishes. It, it, it doesn't belong to just one generation. It doesn't follow post-enlightenment, post-printing press rules. There's a certain hmm. flexibility to the manuscript traditions of the Bible. In fact, mm-hmm. um, the Bible itself incorporates different manuscript traditions. The New Testament authors quote from both Hebrew and Greek translations of scriptures. So I, I also believe this has implications for how we understand interpretation, and, and namely um, that, as I mentioned already, that every generation uh, may have different ways of approaching interpretation of the Bible. But I believe God is at at work in each of those generations. And so different interpretive methods can be useful. And that uh, chastens us against chronological snobbery that Mm -hmm. looks down on the interpretive methods of past generations. It, it, it chastens us from privileging our own interpretive climate and social location as superior. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we can learn from the past uh, path methods while also appreciating that God is working through us today as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What, what unites us across time is Christ and what unites us is interpretation that leads to embodiment of God's humility in all our particular circumstances and contexts. So, uh, so God's humility, as demonstrated in Christ, is is our hermeneutical guide for interpreting Scripture and whatever whatever time period we live. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to change directions a little bit. I noticed that you're a spiritual director at the Redwood Center for Spiritual Care and Education. And this, the Redwood Center has classes, not only what we typically associate with spiritual care, such as spiritual practices, but also on matters that are typically associated with the mind. Like you've got classes on the origins, interpretation of scripture, understanding the Old Testament, etc. So, Clearly, you see a connection between biblical education and spiritual care. Can you tell me a little bit more about how you understand this connection? Absolutely. I mean, I I heard uh, uh, Lauren Winner, the author Lauren Winner, who is a professor at Duke Divinity School, once pointed out that the greatest commandment includes love the Lord your God with all your mind. And it's so easy to miss that emphasis. I know I didn't Mm -hmm. really kind of Mm. hear that emphasis in that verse until she made it stand out to me. So one of the ways that we love God is with our minds. And, uh, you know, Paul says we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And when our minds are renewed, we're able to discern what God's perfect will is. You know, my passion mm-hmm. is making scholarship accessible. That's why I decided to create the the Redwood Center for Spiritual Care and Education. I want to make scholarship accessible, uh, not only to seminary students, but also pastors and lay folk, because I believe that, that biblical scholarship can make 
a positive difference in, in people's lives. Uh, one way that that's already happening with uh, my most recent book is that people are coming away with the realization of how amazing it is that we have a humble God. So scholarship can lead us to a, a greater understanding of the character of God. And that stirs our heart to worship. Another way that the book mm-hmm. has helped people spiritually is bringing reassurance to those who have wondered whether they could trust the Bible because because of the human mm-hmm. fingerprints that we see in it, the difficult passages, mm-hmm. maybe text of violence or something like that. And so I provide a framework for understanding why those human fingerprints are not a liability. In fact, it shows mm-hmm. us God is working together with us uh, in the middle of, of, of real life. So using our minds to engage biblical scholarship can shape us spiritually in, in just wonderful ways. That's so wonderful, Karen. You know, it's interesting because you talk about um, shape, reshaping our minds and, you know, and how does scripture play a role in that? And it's interesting because one of your interests you talked about besides spiritual formation and um, and the history of biblical interpretation and it, its process is ethics. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested in, you know, in how... And how these different pieces that you you've been talking about how you how the, how your view of biblical interpretation leads to action in our world, um, and how does this form of interpretation call us towards what does it call us towards in in, in real life everyday activities? Um, yeah, so so biblical interpretation definitely leads us to real life activity. So biblical interpretation as I say in my book, is not really biblical interpretation unless it's embodied. It's mm. that it's because mm. Christ is the 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 literal sense and it, it, it specifically God's humility in Christ is the literal sense that when we interpret it, we are going to be embodying that uh humility in everyday life. And I think that that has kind of a circular effect, uh, you know, as we are practicing that humility, it then allows us to see scripture even more clearly. So, you know, Jesus said, uh, you know, you search the scriptures and you, and you don't see me. So it's possible to be in the scriptures and not see Christ, to not see the meaning. Mm-hmm. Of, 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 this, mm. of the text. And why did Jesus say that they didn't see? He said, because you don't have the love of God in you. Mm. And mm. so uh, there's a sense in which there's a circular motion of, of formation that happens. Scripture teaches us about the love of God. And as we internalize that truth and we embody that same love, uh, it, it it allows us even greater clarity to read and and apply scripture, and this has all kinds of practical implications. Uh, you know, as we can see from very clear examples of what didn't go right. So I have a whole chapter that's talking about apartheid and and slavery and and mm-hmm. analyzing what exactly went wrong with their interpretation. 
why, what happened here? And um, it was one, a very reductionistic view of what the literal sense is, but it was also the, the lack of understanding of God's humility and the lack of understanding that what God is calling us to is to embody that humility, which is uh, using one's power for the benefit of others to raise mm. up and lift up others so that we are stewarding the earth shoulder to shoulder, just as God lifts us up and seats us together with him on the throne. Mm. Wow. Whew, that's inspiring, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> so we've already talked about this a little bit, but how would you say that your research has influenced your own spiritual life? Oh, uh, I mean, just using this example, you know, of, of my most recent book, I, I was being honest when I said at the beginning there that as I did this book and I was seeing the humility of God, it really did uh, make me just worship God. I, you know, it has, you know, doing this research for this book and for other things, it just has filled my heart with awe at how great is our God, how amazing and wonderful is our God. And uh, biblical inter- uh, biblical research has helped me to have a more, accurate understanding of of god it has mm-hmm. strengthened my faith it has inspired me to keep pressing toward that goal of the upward call and uh, it has encouraged me when i have felt disillusioned when i've had questions and i and i've wondered if god is there or i've had a, had a thorny theological question or confusion, and I, I've turned to scripture. I turned to, to to research to to find wisdom, to find insight. Or if I've had trouble praying, and scripture becomes a place of contemplation and meditation, it becomes my prayer. Uh, the the way that I process and learn is is through writing. When I want to know what it is that I think, I I, I write, and so mm-hmm. uh, yeah. when I when I do research and I and I write out everything to synthesize the material it's that process through which i contemplate and meditate and come to know spiritual things it's where the holy spirit uh speaks to me and influences me mm-hmm. you know um throughout my life i have really struggled with the fact that i'm an introvert it, it's hard to be an introvert in an extrovert's world, but the ability to spend, you know, these long period of time studying and writing alone, which is necessary for this kind of work, is is also uh, has been a great gift. And uh, it reminds me of in the movie *Chariots of Fire*, the Olympic runner Eric Little, who went on to be a missionary, says. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Mm. And, and, and that is exactly how I feel when I'm writing, when I'm mm. writing these books, when I'm researching and writing, I feel God's pleasure. It, mm. it, it, it's what God created me to do. So research for me is living out God's vocation for me, God's, God's mm. call on my life. 
Mm. I love that so much. Thank you for sharing. That's Mm, that's awesome. So we're going to transition now to the last section of the show, which we call the marginalia. And this is a series of fun questions designed to help get to know Karen a little bit more as a person. So Karen, if you could have coffee or tea or other, whatever beverage you want with any historical figure, living or dead, except can't be Jesus mm-hmm. or Paul, <laughs> who would you choose and why? Yes, yes. I really want to say two, if I can get away with saying two, but sure, I, yeah. I, 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 the first person I would say is Amy Carmichael, who was my hero throughout <sighs> my youth. So she inspired me to pursue God whole, uh, wholeheartedly. A- Amy was an Irish missionary to India uh, when she was very young. I think in her 20s, she, she moved to India and spent her entire life there, living there and rescuing and caring for orphans. Mm-hmm. And she also wrote several books, including books of poetry, uh, that was her ministry that developed after she became bedridden from an accident. And she was actually bedridden for like the last 20 years of her life. They were walking at night and she, that was this pit that they didn't see and she fell in and, and had a serious injury. And so that became part of her spiritual walk in life as she struggled with that. And some of her books just talk about pain and, um, and, and following God, regardless of our circumstances. Anyway, she's lived an amazing life and I would love to sit down and talk with her about, you know, the day in and day out and, and, and learn from her in person to sit at her feet. Uh, So she's one. And then I I also have to say Brian Stevenson, who is alive and well today and uh, wrote the book, just mercy uh, he's a lawyer that has worked to help free, uh, especially African-Americans who have been put into criminal justice system unjustly. There was a movie that was made about mm-hmm. that story, also called Just Mercy. And um, he is a phenomenal person, a, a p- phenomenal Christian who had dedicated his life to um, helping others, and also, particularly, I'm struck by his grace and the way that he has experienced um, a lot of racism in his own life, and has mm-hmm. seen horrible, horrible, horrible injustices happen to to uh, people. And he responds with such Christ-like grace in the midst of all of that and and he's like the person I want to be when I grow up that's that's amazing you know um I've never heard someone else list Amy Carmichael Mm. and her book Candles in the Dark her letters that she wrote to her friends while she was bedridden is one of the things that actually brought me back to my faith um, mm, when mm. I was in a space of really, really dark place. Um, and mm. so it's just beautiful. Like you, you said her name and talked about her and I felt like I came back almost like, like you brought her back in a, in a really beautiful mm. way. So thank mm-hmm. you for that. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. This is a little bit of lighter question. If you could take an all expense paid trip somewhere um, with, you know, no health consequences or anything like that, uh, where would you go? 
I would really love to take a trip along the East Coast in the fall. That had been on my bucket list forever. Mm. I love nature and fall is my favorite season. There is mm. nothing, nothing, nothing like the burst of orange and red and yellow trees. I, mm. I love trees. I have been known to stop and hug trees. <laughs> so You're a I, literal tree hugger. Yes. I love it. <laughs> I, I would start in North Carolina and I'd go all the way up to, to Maine and Prince Edward Island and the eastern part of Canada. Maybe I would, uh, you know, do something fun, like do it by train and stop overnight in different places to hike and visit historical sites. So I, I think that's what I would do. So if, if, if awesome. either of you want to give me an all expense paid trip, I will take it. I can't give you an all expense paid trip, but if you ever end up on the border with Maine and New Brunswick and you want to go up into New Brunswick, that's where my husband's family is. Oh, okay. So we actually have like people with houses there. So if, you know, if yes. you, if you ever decide to do a trip and you're like, we just need some friends to stay with, uh, we've got connections. Okay, well, <laughs> so I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Uh, <laughs> all right the next question is what do you do for fun so uh i will be really boring but honest and say that for me work is play that's probably neurotic and i probably need therapy for that but i do (laughs) i do love i really do love work there's something so absolutely thrilling about producing things and and being productive i find that fun but uh, i i i do i'm also admittedly a recovering workaholic and so i do try to have non-work fun and so some of the non-work fun things that i love to do are hiking being in nature having a stimulating conversation with a friend at a coffee shop and uh, reading a book that I don't have to take notes on is, mm. is pretty exciting. So <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, I relate to so many of the things you just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could describe yourself in three words, what would they be? Okay, well, I cheated and I asked my spouse this morning to tell me <laughs> what the three words should be. And I was told uh, intellectual, compassionate, and mm-hmm. patient. So I'll, I'll go with that. That's lovely. That combination is really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is your favorite movie and why? Oh, my favorite movie. Oh, this is so hard because there are so many different things that I could um, put. Um, One of them is, if I can use a documentary, I love documentaries. There's one that's called Rivers and Tides, probably something that most people haven't heard from. And it's about an artist who works with the materials of nature, so like twigs or mm. ice or something like that. And it's really incredible, not only to see the artwork that he makes, and I'm a nature lover, so the fact that he's making art from natural materials is, is particularly moving to me. But the whole film is very contemplative. So 
Mm. Um, and since I work in the field of spiritual care, I'm always thinking about films that are, are meaningful on a spiritual level. And I found something very particularly um, uh, meaningful about that. So that's one, one film that I oh. really like. That I'm sounds not, so adding, good. I'm adding a move that movie to my list now. That sounds yeah. like a <laughs> really too. valuable thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I love, I love being in nature and it's spiritual patterns. So, yeah. Um, okay. If you could eat one meal for the rest of your life with no negative effects, so it could be something like, you know, that isn't great for your body, but you just like it. What would it be? Well, you may not respect me after I say this. <laughs> <laughs> this is really terrible. But my answer is Tapa Ramen. Um, <laughs> I love that answer. Oh my goodness. When I was a kid, when I was a kid, I was addicted to Tapa Ramen. And I, my mother made me put an egg in it because it had no nutritional value whatsoever. So I was only allowed to eat it if I put an egg in it. And now, as an, as, as an adult, I only permit myself to eat it about once a year because it's like a donut. It's not good for you. Uh, but there, there, there's, there's something so comforting and cozy and tasty mm. about a hot bowl of, of Tapa Ramen. Well, you know, so my, my kids just had, uh, while we were at a Society of Biblical Literature Conference, I had my kids who are teenagers for the first time uh, actually have time to themselves. Um, taking care of each other. And we had an entire drawer of top ramen. (laughs) That was just like, and they, cause they were like, "Ah, we just need ramen and we'll be all set. (laughs) And and so uh, I have such a deep love of a nice warm bowl of top ramen. Like Oh, it's just you, good. You have to do that sometime. <laughs> yes. Sit down, have a good conversation over a bowl of top ramen. I have a new plan. So you and I are going to go to the Northeast and we're going to yes. sit in beautiful fall leaves eating our top ramen. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. I would love that. I would love that. I'm down. oh that's wonderful thanks karen (laughs) (laughs) yes karen thank you so much for joining us today it's been a real pleasure talking with you oh it's been wonderful to talk with you both thank you so much for having me I'd also like to say thank you to our listeners for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. And if you'd like to help us, you can share the podcast with others, subscribe to our podcast on your podcast player. You can check out more on bridgingtheology.com or on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram feeds at Bridging Theology. 